I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 32. Now, we've been studying the life of Jacob, and we saw Jacob has now at this point fleed from Laban, if you remember. The, the reason he went to Laban's house all the way in Padan Aram is because he cheated his brother out of his birthright. His brother threatened to kill him, to murder him, to get back at this, back at him. And so his mom and dad sent him away to find a wife in Padan Aram. It is now 20 years later. And Jacob is on his way back to the promised land. Now in the passage we're going to study today, chapter 32, basically Jacob plans to meet Esau again. He plans to reconcile with his brother. He plans for an encounter with Esau. But what he gets is an encounter with God. In this passage, this is truly one of the most vague and enigmatic passages, I think, in all of the Bible. There's, there's a, a, a darkness and a depth to this passage. And there's a, a, a richness and a, an ambiguity about this passage that I think is intentional. In the passage we're about to read, distinctions are blurred between what is of earth and what is of heaven. What is a man and what is God? And what is merely a brother trying to reconcile with his brother? And what is a necessary path towards union with God in his presence? Those distinctions are blurred in this passage. So I want you to read with me as we're just going to walk through um, Genesis 32 and comment on Jacob as he returns to the promised land. So would you read verses 1 and 2 with me? It says that Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. In the, just those two verses, I want you to notice there's an overlap between divine and human realms. Jacob's now reached the border of the promised land. He's come back from Padan Aram. He's now come to the border of the promised land where he is met by the angels of God. And these are angels. These are not Elohim. These are messengers, Malak, of God. And so Jacob concludes this is God's camp. The angels, the messengers of God are here in this place. So he gives the place a name, Mahanaim, which means two camps. So Jacob's thought process is this isn't just a place where I am. This is a place where angels are stationed, where angels are residing. So Jacob has arrived at the border of the promised land, and there is a distinct overlap between earth and heaven in this place. And it's at the spot, it's at the border of the promised land where this happens. 
Now, the last place we saw angels being stationed specifically at a location was in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden and angels were stationed there to guard that territory. And so I think it's very interesting that as Jacob gets to the border of the Promised Land, he is met there by angels. One commentator, John Salehammer, puts it like this. He says, The land appears to be guarded at its borders by angels. The same picture was suggested earlier in Genesis when Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden and cherubim were positioned on the east of the Garden to guard the way of the Tree of Life. It can hardly be accidental that as Jacob returned from the east, he was met by angels at the border of the Promised Land. So the earth is holy because all of it belongs to the Lord. But the promised land in Genesis certainly is the holy of holies. So whatever happens now from the rest of the passage, this fact that Jacob has come to a place where angels are at the border of the promised land shows us that there is an overlap between what is of man and what is of God, what is of earth and what is of heaven. In his pilgrimage to the promised land, then, Jacob, as I read the passage, and there are different views on this, but as I read the passage, I think Jacob is making a genuine attempt to reconcile with his brother before he enters the promised land. Again, the reason he is coming to the promised land, the reason he went, rather, to Padan Aram, miles away, is because his brother wanted to kill him. Remember, Esau said, I'm going to murder him after my father dies. And so Jacob flees. Now 20 years later, he's coming back. And in verse 3, we read that Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Now, we don't, we don't see this because we're just reading a text, but if you look on a map, Jacob could have just made a straight line to the promised land. He could have just gone right into the promised land, almost just going straight west. But what he does is he sends messengers down some 50 miles south to the land of Seir in Edom to contact his brother. He could have gone straight, but he goes out of his way to send messengers 50 miles south to Edom to contact his brother. He did not need to do that. So as I see it, this is not just a physical trip to the promised land. It's a spiritual pilgrimage for Jacob. Before he enters the land that God had promised him, he needs to face his past and be reconciled with his brother. Remember, Jacob was a cheater and a liar. And when God brings you further and closer into his presence, many of us are going to have to address our past. So before he can enter the promised land, he needs to be reconciled with his brother. Derek Kidner says, Geographically, the call to Bethel would take him nowhere near Esau. But spiritually, he could reach Bethel no other way. 
To meet God, he must first be reconciled with his brother. So, verses 4 and 5. We read that he sent these messengers down, instructing them, Thus shall you say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. Look how Jacob humbles himself before Esau. He uses deferential language like my Lord, your servant Jacob, and that I might find favor in your sight. Again, I see a genuine attempt to reconcile with Esau before he enters the promised land. So I think this is a a protological embodiment of Christ's command in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there, before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So I find that very interesting. It's, don't come to the house of the Lord, or don't come and make sacrifices before me, and try to make yourself right with me, and try to give me gifts, if you're out in the world creating chaos. You first be reconciled with your brother. And that's certainly the path that Jacob is taking. Before you seek to enter the land of God, the promised land, you need to face your past, be reconciled with brother, with your brother, then you can enter my presence. So, Jacob, as I see it, is intending to reconcile with his brother. And this is the pilgrimage that God has led him on. Um, But we get the impression that Esau does not intend the same thing. Verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Now, why would you bring 400 men with you? I think Esau, it seems at this point, intends to do Jacob harm. I mean, this means war. Esau is told that your brother is coming, and his brother rouses up his 400 men to come and meet his brother there. So Jacob divides up the camp, verses 7 and 8. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him. And the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So he divides up the camp in order to save half. So he is ready to be attacked by his brother. Now it's at this point, when he is brought to a point of fear and to a point of dread, where he cannot cheat his way out, where he cannot connive his way out, where he doesn't have the answer that he has brought to the Lord. So Jacob prays. And I think this is such a, 
a beautiful and instructive paradigm for prayer. Jacob prays and says, O God, my Father, God, my Father of Abraham, and God, my Father of my Father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered in multitude. And so he prayed to the Lord. This is one of the great moments of Jacob's life. Finally, he has come to a point where he cannot work himself out of it. He cannot think himself out of it. He's got a massive camp of probably a thousand animals. I know he gives... He, he's going to, later in the passage, offer Esau 550 of them. So he has a massive camp. His brother is coming with 400 men, as far as he knows, to kill him. And he casts himself on the mercy of the Lord. First of all, look at verse 10. Jacob acknowledges his unworthiness. So he is brought to a point of repentance, true repentance. As he reflects on his life, he says, I am not worthy of the least of the deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I, let it be known that this is the kind of prayer that God accepts. Not a railing, not a, a, a fist shaking at God, but this is the kind of prayer that is acceptable. To God. Nevertheless, what he does is not just acknowledge his unworthiness, but he does petition his God. And he says in verse 11, Please deliver me, for I fear that Esau is going to come and attack me. And what is the basis for his petition? It is the promises of God. Verse 12, You said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered. This is a great model for prayer. It is a humble, imploring, and entreating God for his favor based on his promises. Based on his promises. So I think at prayer meetings, at prayer meeting, we need to attach our requests to the promises of God. And you in your private prayer as well, attach your requests and your hunger to something God has promised you. So often we pray, oh God, please do this and this and that and this and this laundry list. But if we would be close with God's will, speak his words back to him. Lord, you said those who wait on you will renew your strength.
Lord, I am struggling with assurance of salvation. But you said nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. Lord, I remember reading the Old Testament as I watch the nation crumble and the world crumble. And I remember you told Israel that if they humble themselves and pray and seek, their fa seek your face, that you would heal their land. And I know you're the same God. You're a healer of lands. So attaching your, your, your request to a promise of God, this is why it is so important for you to memorize choice passages of Scripture. All of us are going to be have different makeups, personality makeups, and different struggles, trials in life, and certain passages are going to shine for you very brightly. Very brightly. The Holy Spirit, I think, has drawn me to certain passages in my life so that I can internalize them and speak them back to God in prayer. Own them. One of the ones I have owned, which at least one of you knows, is Psalm 131. It says, O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Lord, I'm not, I'm not going to constantly be grasping for more than you've given me. I'm not going to occupy myself with thoughts out there that constantly, once I'm exposed to them, create confusion in my mind. I'm not going to listen to voices that constantly try to plague my soul and fixate on myself, but I'm going to calm and quiet my soul like a weaned child with its mother. What does a weaned child do with its mother? It no longer needs a mother's milk, but is content with the presence of its mother. So I'm going to be content with your presence, Lord, and what you've given me, and your power, and I'm going to rely on you and rest there. That's been very, very good for my soul. And I hope it's good for those of you who memorize it. So attach your, attach, like Jacob, attach your request to the promises of God. How do you know you're asking the right thing if God has promised it to you? So, Jacob does this. He's fearful that his brother is going to kill him with 400 men who comes after him. So what Jacob does is he sends gifts to Esau in droves, starting in verse 13. So he stayed there that night. Um, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking lamb, camels, and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me, 
and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So not only does Jacob go out of his way to tell Esau that he's near, but then he sends, I believe it was, 550 animals, which was a very, very expensive gift ahead of him. It is almost like he's offering an atonement to Jacob. It's almost like he's making a sacrifice, or to Esau rather. Almost like he's making atonement for reconciliation for his brother Esau. So he sends these droves ahead of him. And night begins to fall. And he wants the, his family to get over the river, the brook, before night falls. So he sends his family ahead of him towards the promised land towards the other side of the river it says verse 22 the same night he arose and took his two wives his two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had and Jacob was left alone so I imagine Jacob alone by himself crying before the Lord next to a small campfire that's dying down the night before he meets his brother who promised to murder him who's now coming after him with 400 men and this is where the distinction between what is of earth and what is of heaven intensifies because that night on the eve of seeing Esau he has an encounter verse 24 we're told that a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So I imagine Esau or Jacob sitting there next to his fire and he, he hears splashing coming from the other side of the river. And he looks up and as his eyes focus, he sees a man coming after him with intensity. And as he gets closer and closer, it becomes very clear that this man is not coming after him to say hello or for pleasantries, but he is coming to fight. And he comes up to him and the man pushes him over right away. And Jacob begins to wrestle this man and they wrestle all night. And I certainly there must have been confusion on Jacob's part and bewilderment that some man comes across the river and just attacks him. He must have been a strong man, but Esau, or Jacob, also strong himself. This is not an angel, a malach. It says it's a man, an ish in Hebrew. 
This is a man coming and wrestling him, beating and bruising one another. And a man wrestles him to the break of day. Verse 25, we see that it definitely is a man, but it's definitely more than a man who's wrestling him. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. What a, what a bewildering sentence that this man wrestles with Jacob all night and did not prevail. He could not beat Jacob. Yet in the same breath, all the man needed to do is touch his hip socket and put it out of joint. This is a, a perfect example. And I, I'm going to use what sounds to be like a Catholic phrase, but I'm not meaning it that way. But this is a perfect example of the fact that reality itself is sacramental. That means the distinction between what is physical and what is spiritual is not as neat as our modern minds, enlightened minds would have it. There are holy things and holy places and the holy circumstances and holy trials that are filled with a holy awfulness. So he wrestles this man who could not prevail against Jacob yet at the same time needs only to touch his hip and put it out of joint, out of socket. So after wrestling all night and now putting his hip out of joint, Jacob did not give up. Verse um, 26. Then the man said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob is somebody who always strived for blessing. And he was a great cheater and sinner thereby. He was born grabbing the heel of his brother. He cheated his brother out of his birthright with a bowl of stew. He deceived his father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. He has been striving for blessing from men his whole life. But now, something begins to burgeon on his conscience as he wrestles this man he slowly begins to believe, or at least it seems to bloom on his conscience, that he is wrestling not just a man, but an extension of God himself. What he thought was mortal initially, he realizes is an extension of Yahweh, of the divine. So after fighting all night, and with his hip out of joint, he hangs on 
as this realization burgeons on his conscience, no longer wrestling the man to defeat him, but wrestling the man to receive a blessing from him. Verse 20. Let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And the man said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. A change in identity through an encounter with God. Does that not sound like salvation? A change of who you are through an encounter with God. His name is no longer Jacob, one who cheats. His name is now going to be Israel, one who strives with God. And has prevailed in his striving with God. Great sinners make great saints very often. Because a great sinner is often very impassioned about what he does. Or very steadfast in his sinfulness and debauchery. But once that intensity is redirected towards God, it can be very useful. That is why I think God picked the most zealous man in Israel with the Apostle Paul, who was dragging people to prison if they worshipped this Jesus and redirected, complete 180, redirected that zeal to Christ. So that man who wanted to kill anyone who spoke the name of Christ was now changed into a man 30 years later, who spoke about Christ as one who he wanted to know and the power of his resurrection and to be made like him in his death, even to the point of death on the cross. God redirects, repurposes great sinners. So if you are a great sinner, if you have done things that are shameful in your eyes and awful in your eyes, Know that God can redirect that sinful debauchery that you had in you and, and channel it to be a holy zeal for Him. Likewise, He can also take your sinful sin itself, that thing you did, and redirect it as a testimony, as something you've been delivered from, and something that can be passed down to others and say, look how disorganized and dark and unfilled and unformed I was, but reconstituted by God's power. So, Jacob's hunger has been redirected. Now, Jacob realizes that this is more than a man. He strives for blessing from this man who be who he knows is some extension of the divine somehow. But he still asks the question because he wants to be sure. So he says, Then Jacob asked, Please tell me your name. And 
he said, why is it that you ask my name? I think that is... He doesn't answer him. Why is it that you ask my name? Three comments on this encounter. First of all, um, that phrase, why is it that you ask my name, has been very, very profound for me in the past few years. Because there's always a... This turns out to be a manifestation of God. So the phrase, why is it you ask my name, is really the man saying to Jacob, you know exactly who I am. You know who I am. Why do you ask my name? There is always a question as when I was younger on whether this thing or circumstance was from God or just something that happened randomly. Whether this was an answered prayer or just a fortunate occurrence. And uh, I would often at, be asking myself, I wonder, was that God or not? And it's almost like this passage struck me in the face a few years ago. And it was almost like God saying to me, why is it that you are asking if those things come from me? You know exactly where they're coming from. You know exactly where that where that blessing that you were praying for came from. So there, again, there's, there was always a question, and maybe for you as well, there is a question surrounding whether a certain thing in your life is a blessing or a coincidence. Whether it's an unfortunate circumstance or a divine tool to shape you. Whether it's just serendipity or it's an opportunity to be faithful in the midst of trials. Whether it's God's guidance or chastening or opportunity to be faithful, whether it's a pointless circumstance or a divine intervention. I think as people of God, we need to see our lives more in terms of being overlapped with God's activity. We need to see that there's an overlap between our lives and what God is doing in our lives. Now, listen, I, I know I, I've, I've told you about dreams I have, and, and I'm not saying that everything ever comes from, from God. I think there are sometimes things that happen that are not from God. So, I've told you before, that I used to wake up in the middle of the night and I felt like the Lord told me to walk into the kitchen. And so I did. I walked into the kitchen. And I, let me tell you, nothing has ever happened when I walked into the kitchen. I never got a revelation from God. It must not have been God. That's what I conclude. I've not received anything from it yet. I'll let you know when I do. So I'm not, I'm not saying that everything happens or every every inkling in your mind comes is, is a message from the Lord. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying, though, that there are times where we need to be more watchful and um, we need to look for His guidance in our lives more carefully and walk more circumspectly. In the past, in the past 
week or so. Now, if you don't have if you don't have a OneNote on your phone, download it because you can you can take notes on anything. And I have so many notes on here, but in in my journal section, I realized the Lord has taught me six things in the past week and a half, and I wrote these down a few days ago. I talked to somebody who is a great prayer about maybe a week, maybe two weeks ago. Fasting and praying for the salvation of someone she loved. And it rebuked me because I don't have that, I don't pray with that kind of fortitude. So I believe the Lord was using that conversation to rebuke me and to, to exhort me to be more of an earnest, desperate prayer like this woman was. I spoke to somebody about family worship and it encouraged me to do it even more than I had been doing it. I was speaking evil of somebody. Not really evil, but I, I was, there's a, we play softball. And I was saying, every time this guy pitch, he gets ripped to shreds. So I was saying, I should, I should pitch. And this was constantly my refrain. So I pitched this week in softball, and I got ripped to shreds. So I feel like the, the Lord was softly rebuking me. And that's how I'm going to take it. You don't have to believe me, or not, but that's how I'm going to take it. Paul says, speak evil of no one. I was, I, was, I was constantly making fun of this person, so he rebuked me. A few other things, but uh, you see, my, po my point is, take, take circumstances and conversations in life, and after you have them, ask yourself, now why did that happen? Could there be meaning? Is the Lord speaking through that conversation? So, Jacob thought this was a mere man. Turned out to be a manifestation of God. Maybe you think some things are mere coincidences or happenstances. Perhaps, maybe, they're an opportunity to wrestle with God. Secondly, notice the manner in which God meets Jacob is a wrestler. I find that amazing. God meets Jacob not tender and soft in this, in this circumstance, but as a wrestler, someone who, who comes to beat him up. So God is testing Jacob's spiritual fortitude, it seems, through a physical conflict. He wrestled with him all night, put his hip out of joint, and yet Jacob replies, I will not let you go until you bless me. I agree with John Calvin when he writes the following. Wherefore, it is right to keep in view this design of the vision, which is to represent all the servants of God in this world as wrestlers. Because the Lord exercises them with various kinds of conflicts. Moreover, it is not said that Jacob or any mortal man wrestled with Jacob, but God himself. To teach us that our faith is tried by him. And whenever we are tempted, 
Our business is truly with Him. Not only because we fight under His auspices, but because He, as an antagonist, descends into the arena to try our strength. This, though at first sight seems absurd, experience and reason teaches us to be true. For, for as all prosperity flows from His goodness, so adversity, either the rod with which he corrects our sin or the test of our faith and patience. So very often the Lord will descend into the arena of your life, not as a dove, not as a mother, but as a wrestler. And this may be very intense, like Abraham was tested to sacrifice his son and the Lord allowed him to go through the angst that that involved until he came to the mountain and took the knife. Abraham's test was Abraham was tested why to see if he really feared him. God wrestled with Jacob to see if he would cling to him for blessing. Job was given adversity so that in the midst of Satan's trials, Job would still fight for God's glory so that God could look down in the great council and say, Have you seen my servant, how faithful and upright he is? So that even if you are getting attacked by the devil, like Martin Luther says, remember it's God's devil. And God is in control of what happens, isn't allowing you to go through it. Why did God give, why did God allow Paul to be spiritually tormented by demons? Why it was to keep him humble and focused on his mission. And he tests the genuineness of New Covenant people's faith as well. First Peter says, First Peter 1 Peter 1.6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. The testing of your faith is very precious. It's more precious than gold, but it is tested. Your faith and your faithfulness is tested, even by fire. So that through the testing and through your endurance, that testing is actually found to result in praise and glory and honor. I love that. So what will you do with the testing of your faith? Wrestle with God in the testing of your faith. And through that, the situation, circumstance, trial, wounding of your pride, wounding of your self-esteem 
wounding of your marriage, your job, whatever, whatever the Lord has allowed you to go through, it is a testing of your faith and faithfulness. And it is very precious. May it result in praise and honor and glory at the coming of Jesus Christ. How is God testing you? Now, one of the great ways God tests people that I've noticed is testing their faith through the wrestler of doubt. Doubt. Someone needs to hear this today. I don't know who. Your opponent is doubt. Now, I don't think doubt is always a bad thing because it makes you think about things more honestly. But I, wanted, I bring up doubt to say that there are many reasons that you might doubt and there are many truths that God has revealed that you may doubt. And I know many struggle with these things. And even men who pretend to be sure of everything are not sure of everything. So I bring this up to exhort you and to implore you not to wonder where your faith is, but to fight for faith in the midst of doubt. You fight for it. The Apostle Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life with which you are called. You are going to be plagued with doubts of various kinds. That doesn't mean you close your mind off to these questions, but in the midst of your questions and in the midst of your doubts, whatever they may be, you fight for faith in the midst of these things. And you cast yourself on God, like Jacob did, and you say, Oh Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. It has been so um, niche today to talk about doubt and deconstruction like you're being honest with yourself and authentic. That's not honest and authentic. The honest and authentic thing to do is to fight for the faith in the God that you know. In the midst of the various trials and doubts that would drag you to the dirt. Help my unbelief, Lord. And the Lord may bring you to the... He might wrestle with you in this. And you might be required to wrestle in doubt. There's a, there's, you guys know what a spoken word is? Does anyone not know what a spoken word is? Good. Look up the spoken word by Joseph Solomon called shadow of a doubt. It is so good. They are beyond the shadow of a doubt or something. It's about a young man going off to college and his professors have caused him to doubt his faith. He talks about having a backpack full of tears and how his grandmother who is dying, he wishes that she could pass on the faith that she has to him like an old family picture. So, please watch that. I think that that was one of that's one of always the most heart-rending speeches I've ever heard. Shadow of a Doubt by Joseph Solomon. Um, but you fight for faith. 
You take hold of the eternal light with which you've been called. You don't, you don't just want righteousness and holiness. You pursue, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy, you pursue righteousness, faith. You take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. So, many of you have been called to wrestle. And perhaps some of you have been called to wrestle with the enemy of doubt, with the wrestler of doubt. Fight for your faith. Let it be a test of your faith. And may it result in praise and honor at the Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly and thirdly, observation about this passage. Notice Jacob walks away with a limp. He walks away with a limp. Yes, his, his walk has literally been changed. Mark said that to me the other day. Here's an encounter with God that has literally changed the man's walk, <laughs> physically and spiritually. Many of you, as you progress in your pilgrimage, will be humbled through your encounters and repentance with God, and you will walk with a humble limp. So, to summarize, there is ambiguity in this passage that I believe is instructive. I think it's instructive that this is amb ambiguous, and Jacob has, it has to burgeon upon Jacob's conscience that he is not just wrestling a man but God. The distinctions are blurred between what is of earth and what is of heaven. Who is a man and who is God? And I believe that is intentional to show God's people that there are not just only circumstances in life, but there is divine occurrences in life. That there are not just trials, but there is testing of your faith. There is not just wrestling with men, but there is wrestling with God. I believe Jacob's wrestling was a wrestling to be reconciled with his brother before he enters the promised land. We'll see more about that next week. Until then, and as you are tested in faith next week, wrestle with God in faith, through doubt, and may your faith be tested, and may it result in praise and honor and glory. Let's close in a word of prayer.